You're listening to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, welcome back, and thanks for joining the show today. Today we have an interesting topic, near-death experiences. It's an interesting topic. Near-death experiences, or NDEs, are often life-changing. It brings up the idea that there could be more to the physical world than we know, and it's more common than you think. But most in the medical profession don't ask about these experiences. And let's be clear, cardiopulmonary arrest basically means you're dead and is rapidly fatal without resuscitation. Resuscitation can mean the difference between briefly dead versus dead forever. And near-death experiences occur when one is briefly dead or almost to the point of dying. These are people who have died and come back to life, essentially. Dr. Bruce Grayson is mentioned several times in the interview, and he's a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia who studies NDEs. He describes how these experiences sometimes in a matter of seconds, dramatically transform people's attitudes, values, beliefs, and behaviors. In my career as a doctor, I would ask patients if they could recall what they remember after having survived a cardiopulmonary arrest. Yes, I'm weird and curious. Some didn't remember, and there were some who were willing to share what they experienced. Quite frankly, I'm not sure if I was entirely ready to hear the answers at the time. There was a young man who was about to go exercise and collapsed and went into ventricular fibrillation, a life-threatening heart rhythm that results in a rapid, inadequate heartbeat. He told me that he saw his deceased father and felt so incredibly loved at that moment, had seen the bright, warm light, and was told to turn around because it was not his time. Then there was a person who had a massive heart attack and collapsed and went into cardiac arrest. While being resuscitated, she found herself outside of her body, almost in the corner of the room, looking down and could recall those who were actively reviving her. Then there was a person who died and was in this multidimensional space and felt like he was walking in the clouds and was joyously reunited with his beloved dog that died a year earlier. It was apparent that they were going to go for a walk together again, and suddenly he found himself jolted back into his body and in the hospital. Before I quit my job, I read many books written by other medical doctors to try to persuade myself I wasn't the only crazy one. Seriously, I know it sounds silly, but I really liked reading books by other MDs whose thinking was not so conventional or what I viewed as falling off the wagon. It made me feel better because as an MD, we are trained to be non-believers and perhaps even cynical to the things that can't be proven through a randomized control trial or evidence-based medicine. But what if there is really more to the physical world than we know? And could there be others like me? I honestly needed to know. There's Dr. Mary Neal, an orthopedic surgeon who drowned while kayaking on a South American river and experienced life after death and wrote the book To Heaven and Back. 
Then there's Dr. Eben Alexander, a neurosurgeon who wrote about his near-death experience while under medically induced coma when being treated for meningitis and wrote Proof of Heaven. And then there's Anita Morjani, who wrote Dying to Be Me. Anita's not a doctor, but I bring her up because her book messed me up real good. She talks about how she almost died and how she has chosen to live differently after having almost died. And well, her book helped me to think about life differently and made me wonder how I wanted to live if I were less afraid. And on to today's show. Today we have Kimberly Clark Sharp on the show today. She wrote the book After the Light, The Spiritual Path to Purpose and is the founder of Seattle International Association of Near-Death Studies, the oldest support group for those who have experienced near-death experiences. Her work is also featured in the Netflix docuseries, Surviving Death. Welcome to Lost or Found, Kim. I'm so honored to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. And actually, it's mutual. In preparation for this program, I've just fallen for you like a friend I always had but had never met before. Oh, I feel exactly the same way. Thank you. And before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Kimberly Clark Sharp, comma, MSW, which means I have a master's in social work, comma, L-I- CSW, which means I'm a clinical independent licensed social worker. And I'm very proud of that because in the state of Washington, uh, that level of licensing means I can practice social work in any state in the union. It's comparable to a PhD in uh, social work, clinical interventions and diagnoses and all that. So thank you for asking. I founded the very first, like ever in the whole world, support group for near-death experiencers in Seattle. It's Seattle International Association for Near-Death Studies, or IONS. So we're seattleions.org, if you care to visit us. And we're an offshoot of ions.org, which is really the biggest uh, website in the world on the subject of uh, research and um, and support and stories and blah, blah. Uh, there's another website, INDERF, N-D-E-R-F, that is the largest collection of stories if you're interested. So um, I taught uh, with others uh, a death and dying seminar that was required at the uh, second year level of the University of Washington School of Medicine. And that's unusual to be an educator as a social worker in a medical school, something I'm also proud of. Um, At one time I was named uh, one of the 40 most influential people under the age of 40 in the Pacific Northwest. How wonderful. And you know, I know the International Association for Near-Death Studies was featured in the uh, Netflix docuseries Surviving Death. And it seems like a wonderful organization as like everyone as people get together to talk about their experiences, it's really profound what was recorded. Yeah, uh, it was an honor to be a part of that. And it's episode one. It's excellent. 
the production, well, the yeah. Netflix production values were very high. It's like yeah. seeing a movie on the big screen. It was so. inspiring. And, you know, as we start, you know, I loved reading your book, After the Light. Can you tell us the story of Maria and the Blue Sneaker? Yes. Harborview Medical Center, uh, which is part of the University of Washington in Seattle, is a huge place. It's a trauma center for one-fourth of the United States uh, landmass, was then, is now. Lots of people were admitted to critical care where I work. Uh, coronary care, medical intensive care. Uh, there was also surgical intensive care, the burn unit, of course, the emergency room. People in those, oh, neuro, neuro I see. But people died the most in the coronary care unit because of the obvious uh, heart disease factor. So I was very busy, and this is where I was honing my career. But um, So you were mostly I, in the CCU then? I was mostly in medical intensive care unit and oh, coronary care unit. Yeah. Because so ICU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah I, and no other. I never got out of ICU. I was mm-hmm. an intensivist. So uh, one day I was minding my own busy business when um, I was in the chart room, actually. And I could see into the monitor room and somebody was flatlining well, at Harborview on the coronary care unit. That's like, you know, set my watch. It happened throughout the day and night. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was curious. I got up and, and the person flatlining, her first name was Maria. Uh, she had been admitted three days earlier during the night when I wasn't on duty uh, with ongoing CPR at that time. She was duh, unconscious and uh, was placed on the coronary care unit, which by the way, and this is important, is then as now, it's on the second floor on the north end of this massive building. So um, I had done a workup when she arrived, which included, you know, trying to find family, money, and a translator because she spoke uh, Spanish. Mm-hmm. And she had a few English words, but I had a few Spanish words, you know, three years of high school Spanish didn't carry me far. So, but, you know, she was stable. She was doing fine. And I liked her. I like everybody though. So uh, it was Maria that was flatlining. And so I, and the social worker responds. So I was in the doorway. I watched a very easy resuscitation, actually, and uh, left to go about my business. Maria was still unconscious, but you know, she's going to be fine. A few hours later, I got called back to uh, coronary care unit because Maria was awake, very agitated. Uh, the nurse was afraid she would flip right back into cardiac arrest because of her level of agitation. So I did my best to figure out what Maria was upset about. Well, um, she, found, she found herself floating at the ceiling level in her hospital room and could see everything that was going on. Um, she correctly identified, you know, the primary mm-hmm. people working on her body. I was like, you know, skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, well, you know, to the best of our knowledge, hearing is the last sense to go. So she knew who was on duty. She was mm-hmm. well educated by the staff as to what would happen if she arrested again, as she was when she was brought in. Uh, so she stated that she was outside of her body during that yeah, code she then. At okay. the ceiling looking. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Not scared or anything, but that was her perspective. 
Mm-hmm. The one thing that tripped me up in my skepticism, uh, but I ignored it, was that she talked about all of the paper on the floor. And indeed, this is in 1977, and all of the cardiac data did come out of a big machine with a wide mouth. Mm-hmm. And it got kicked under the patient's bed until the patient either was okay or dead. Mm-hmm. And then ripped up, folded up, and studied by the docs later. Mm-hmm. That is something she was not taught to be aware of. Why, why would you? So, uh, it caught my attention. But like, eh. Then she said she found herself like that. No sense of movement outside of the window, looking down, definitely on the uh, ambulance driveway because there was mm-hmm. an emergency vehicle coming in. But it was one way. And, and again, I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> buy it because her. So she said she was outside of the building, right? To outside. be clear. Okay. Very clear. <laughs> Not looking through the window. She was outside without any idea how she got mm-hmm. there. She just thought about it and was there. Now, I'm going to add a parenthesis here. We do know since then, or I know since then from talking to so many people who've had near-death experiences that there are two ways to move. One is just to think about where you want to be, which is what Maria did, Mm -hmm. and then you're there. The other is to actually float around and Mm -hmm. and feel like your perspective is moving from point A to point B, and you can account for everything that one sees in that situation. You know, her her bed was above the emergency room exit. I just figured somebody from housekeeping pushed your bed over to clean or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, ignoring the fact that she was on spaghetti. As we, I don't know what it's called now, but it used to be all the wires. Yeah. Some housekeeping would move a patient. These rooms were big. Then she said, again, just like that, she spotted in another part of the hospital she didn't know where she was, but she thought it was three or four stories above the ground, a tennis shoe on a ledge. And she said that it's dark blue. The little toe area is scuffed up. Uh, it was large. And there was a white lace that went under the heel. But her perspective was from outside looking towards mm-hmm. the window and the ledge. Okay. And her ICU bed was on the second floor, you said, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. On the north side of the building. And again, Google Earth Harborview Medical Center people. It, this is this takes up, it's a huge, huge yeah. uh, facility. It's a complex. <laughs> it is a complex on two sides of the street and, and then some. And it's, it's mammoth. So um, the reason she was agitated, she wasn't upset. She was excited because she wanted somebody to go find the shoe. Well, all pointers pointed at the social worker, <laughs> a.k.a. sucker. You know, you, you waste your time, Kim. We're busy taking care of other people. So, yeah, it fell to me. And uh, so I went, okay, I want a waste of my time. Uh, I went outside the building. I walked around, but I was too close to the building. And I, as it turns out, I couldn't see things on a ledge very high until I saw a bird fly in and land on a ledge. And I couldn't see the bird, so I thought, oh, darn, I'm going to go inside. And then uh, luck o the Kim, uh, I went inside to the third floor. She said three or four stories above, so whatever. I yielded nothing until I got to the west side of the building. And there happened to be in one of the rooms a cart locking. So I I went in and um, looked down and there was the shoe. 
And I thought my heart was going to stop beating. I needed resuscitation. (laughs) I was in cardiac arrest. I, it blows my mind Mm -hmm. to this day to tell you. With a little toe scuff too, right? On the shoe. In case I should miss it, you know, with all the other single tennis shoes on the ledge. I mean, the details were unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And one also has to ask, what is a shoe doing on a ledge anyway? I, as it turns out, had had a near-death experience seven years mm-hmm. earlier. And I, before we be, uh, you tell us that wonderful story, can I ask you, Kim, what entails a near-death experience then? And what do typ- people typically experience? Well, I've learned a lot from that shoe, by the mm-hmm. way, which I just want to add, it galvanized me. It was at that point that I realized this happened to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, the term near-death experience had not been coined yet in my knowledge. Actually, it was a book out, but I hadn't read it or heard of it. And um, so thank you for your question, because I've learned a lot about the subject since then. I've contributed to it, as a matter of Mm -hmm. fact. So just off the top of my head, the biggie is out-of-body experiences. I would say everybody who has a near-death experience is out-of-body somewhere. Many people are able to view their surroundings. Uh, Some people go up, 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 uh, and can see the uh, planet Earth. Um, Some people go to dimensions that have no descriptions that one would say would be heaven. Some would say hellish. I don't like using that word because there's so many religious connotations with Mm -hmm. heaven and hell. And these are not religious experiences. They are, in my opinion, end of life experiences before we curve right on to rigor mortis. And I want to add too, as I continue to answer your question, for me, in my experience, that's the boundary, uh, rigor mortis. I've never seen anyone come back from rigor. I've never interviewed a corpse. Mm -hmm. I never want to interview a corpse. So um, anyway, there's that. there is hearing the news. People can, you know, uh, clearly repeat back to their resuscitation team what was said. Mm-hmm. Uh, one patient was very upset with his doc because the doctor said, well, don't buy him any long playing records, you know, which is the gallows humor we all use in medical situations when under stress. And, and uh, he could quote him back and say, better buy me a long playing record, doc, because I heard you and I'm not going anywhere. It's like, ah. Change that doctor's life forever as well. Yeah, and this is like a period where patients are not alive. They've coded, they flatlined. There's no pulse. There is no breath. And they're recalling these events or, you know, but technically they are not considered alive during those few minutes or however long. Yeah, sometimes it's a long time. Yeah. You know, resuscitations can go on a while, especially with children. Um, Yeah, any... Any example I give you during this program are people that required resuscitation. I mean, period. In Mm -hmm. a medical setting with chart records and a ton of witnesses. Um, So there's hearing the news, uh, um, the light, for lack of a better word, people uh, say it's just nothing but love, but brighter than anything on earth, but pure love. Uh, and and like highest consciousness for lack of anything better to describe it. My uh, favorite 
uh, aspect of a near-death experience in terms of common elements. Um, it's also the most common to my knowledge, and that is a reunion with loved ones. In my database, 75% of my patients that I've interviewed have had a reunion with a loved one. And those loved ones are, by the way, deceased. They're not on earth. And they're so heartfelt, you know, to see mom or dad or grandma or sister. Sometimes it's pets for children. Mm -hmm. Pets are most common. Uh, sometimes people have exchanges with other beings uh, that they describe as angels or guides. Um, uh, things, for lack of a better word, uh, that when beholding them feel very familiar, although in the course of a normal healthy life have never even been aware of them, and then realize that those beings have always been with them, protecting them, guiding them, whatever. Yeah, all this is a shock for people who have never had a near-death experience. This is like crazy. And then uh, there's one more thing. And this is, again, I, I haven't uh, studied up on this. Everything I'm going to share with you is off my memory bank. I, mm -hmm. I don't have any cliff notes. Your experiences in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, this, memories. <clears throat> anyway, don't ask me to sing. Um, is the tunnel. And a number of people uh, report traveling like at light speed through a tunnel or a wormhole or a, a funnel, words to that effect usually winding up in a light or what they call heaven, a beautiful other environment. And that's the other aspect. Again, people find themselves in completely different environments that don't feel like they are of earth. So that's just a few of the common mm. elements. And I think what I've like read about it is like, it seems like there's a, there in many of these experiences, there's like an ineffability. People aren't exactly speaking. It's just like something that they, they just innately understand, or it's not like your dog's like talking to you. It's, it's just like this kind of like almost as common, not necessarily language that they feel it's like a sense of knowing that they're able to communicate with each other too. Yeah. It's like, um, uh, Telepathy on steroids, if you will. <laughs> That's a good description. It, it, it's better, but it is an ineffable or yeah. speechless experience. I mean, how can mm -hmm. one communicate? I, I, I'm challenged all the time. Yeah, uh, kind of like words. what love is. You know, like sometimes you just feel it. You don't always have to describe it. You, it's just like that sense of knowing. That's a very good way to put things. How do you prove love? Mm -hmm. How do you describe love, especially intense yeah. love? Uh, words fail one. Yeah, you can't prove love. Yeah, and you can't prove it. No. Except in after effects. And that's true of the near-death experience, too. Those after effects are measurable mm -hmm. and have been measured by a physician, uh, University of Virginia, by the name of uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson. I want to give a plug because he has a book that just came out called After. And it's, it's science-based. He's been measuring after effects in near-death experiencers for almost 41 years, 42 years, long time, and has learned that uh, this is one way to measure who has had a near-death experience because mm -hmm. uh, there are people he's also interviewed that have had similar experiences like on drugs or uh, dreams or whatever. 
and they they're just not the same in terms of how it affects people's outlook yeah. on life after. And he's an actual MD studying near death experiences. He's an actual MD. So <laughs> Dr. Bruce Grayson, G R E Y S O N. It's a good book. I think you know kind of like what you described like our reactions or actions may have changed and that could describe love but you can't put a number to it. It just no, no, it's there or not, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we all behave differently if we're in love, you know, we get a little pie eyed yeah. and drooly and, you know, obsessed with the other, our behavior changes. Same mm. with after near death experience, yeah. uh, people become more spiritual. The divorce rate is at 50%, which is ginormous. Uh, that's how changed people are though. Mm. Uh, one of my patients was a, an abusive drunk and, he recovered and became a nice guy who carved wooden toys for young people in Seattle. His wife divorced him because her husband was a lousy drunk. You know, she didn't know this nice guy. Mm -hmm. So the change can be profound. Um, uh, Interestingly, people go to church less. Some people still do or change religions, but Mm -hmm. many people, um, don't need to be defined by a religion you know god is love mm-hmm. uh, many people quit their career the sense of like all knowing the sense that you don't really need to go maybe to a building to praise or yeah just to but, feel it but level of prayer goes up yeah. if you want mm-hmm. to call conversation with, with what we call god prayer yeah that kind of uh, that goes up oh i mean off the wow. charts mm-hmm. absolutely May I ask you, Kim, I know you mentioned your own experience. What was it like for you the time you died? Um, uh, if, let me tell you my dad's perspective first, because he he was on the ground with me. Um, we were at the, uh, I'm from Kansas. We were at the Shawnee Mission, Kansas Department of Motor Vehicles. I have a lot of jokes I won't go into about you know that but it's kind of a funny place to die um anyway i collapsed as we were leaving the building and uh, there happened to be a uniform nurse passing she trotted over uh, could not discern a pulse or uh that i was breathing um she made the right calls the uh fire department arrived from shawnee mission as well as an ambulance from the closest trauma center which was uh, in Kansas City, a place called St. Luke's. Anyway, fire department arrived first. They had a brand new, according to my dad, because they had to open new packaging, portable ventilator that had two features. One to, of course, ventilate the other to uh, vacuum out, you know, objects caught in the throat, cafe coronary kinds of things, children running with candy. Um, they applied the seal to my face and turned it on and it was on vacuum mode. So whatever oxygen was left in my body got sucked out pretty violently. Mm -hmm. They immediately saw what was going on, flicked the switch, pumped air in, but by then it was a mess. So uh, my dad said they turned to him and said, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. And again, then as now, only a physician can declare a death in the Mm -hmm. United States, even though it may be obvious to a firefighter or paramedic um anyway that was their way of saying she's dead and then uh a man that my father always called the good samaritan was he a doctor was he a firefighter we don't know because 
never saw him again, my dad, but he, he came through the crowd and did uh, mouth to mouth, something we don't need to do now. Mm-hmm. That's what he was trained to do. And then he turned to my dad and said, I'm sorry, I'm not getting a thing. At some point, uh, my, my, my dad's memory, you can imagine as a parent, it goes away then. But at some point, my dad remembered the ambulance that arrived. Uh, There's a cheer in the crowd because I'd gathered quite the crowd. And uh, my body was thrown into the back of the ambulance. My dad jumped in. Off we went to St. Luke's. Uh, things got crummy in the emergency room. But I hate to give away the ending to a good book. She lived. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. So anyway, I don't remember any of that. That's just the baseline. Um, what I remember is, however, a woman's voice to my left saying, I'm not getting a pulse. I'm not getting a pulse. Back to that sense of hearing that I mentioned. And I should have also said, often people feel like they're communicating, but they're not being heard and they, mm-hmm. they feel like they're being heard. And that happened to me too, because I turned to her and said, well, to the words, the effect of, you know, of course I have a pulse, I'm talking to you. And um, she ignored me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought, well, I'm out of here. Something to that effect. And I found myself in a gray, foggy area. I was warm. I felt like I was not alone, but I couldn't see who else I was with. I also absolutely felt like I was waiting for something, you know, like I was at the gate at the airport, just waiting for my row to be called. It was, it was no anxiety whatsoever. It was like, oh, very natural, you know, just waiting. And then underneath me exploded this light. Now we get to the ineffable part. I have never found the words to describe the intensity and the glory of this light, brighter than a million suns. If I've never seen a million suns, but if I did, it would be brighter Mm -hmm. than that. It was all love directed at me personally. And it spread out in all directions. And again, how was I seeing without eyeballs? But I could see just fine. And I could see that this light just kept spreading to infinity and beyond. And also, it was at the same time layering on itself. And I somehow knew that those were dimensions. And in the presence of this light, I said, homey home. I later learned from my parents that homey home is what I used to say pulling back into our neighborhood when I was, you know, little and learning language. And I'd see our mm-hmm. house and go, homey home, homey home. That was a gitchy goo moment mm-hmm. for my parents with me. I have no memory of saying that. That's absolutely what I said in the presence of this light. This light I call uh, homey home, my creator, God. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it felt like home. That was home then, the ultimate home. The ultimate mm-hmm. home. Yeah, the source, the Mm -hmm. source, and it was love. Um, I got to ask questions. Uh, Any fool would ask, you know, like, well, where am I? (laughs) And again, it was like, you're home. Um, You know, why are we born? Um, Basically, it was, you know, because you really wanted to. Mm -hmm. By the way, the communication was not in English. It was in a combination of math and music. And when skeptics say, oh, people get what they want to hear um, or see or experience. No, I have no skills in music. You just heard me try to sing a few minutes ago. I have no math skills, yet it was perfect. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and I went, and then I heard the worst thing ever, and that's that I had to go back. Uh, I argued for a while. If There's no time there, so when I say a while, uh, or anything that sounds like in sequence, I don't really mean it. Uh, there's no time. Back your ineffability. But um, I was sent back. Now, I might add that I had flunked uh, parallel parking at the DMV because I could not get my car within six feet of the curb. And here I had the most sacred experience possible. And I missed my body by about six feet. I could see my body through. Mm -hmm. And I I thought, I can't even park myself. I mean, it was just like, why am I being funny after such a sacred life ending Mm -hmm. time? But yet it was. And then I saw a man bend over me as soon as his mouth touched my mouth in my body. Again, my eyeballs were not there. Neither was my sense of identity. And Michelle, that's really important to note for listeners. The me that was me was not in that body. Mm-hmm. But then, um, hello, all you first responders. As soon as his mouth touched mine, I went towards him and threw him to get back into my body. I went through mm-hmm. um, seem to know everything emotionally about the guy, you know, just uh, including his deep anxiety and, and, you know, what am I doing here? And and then, um, so back in my body, I hated it. It was cold and dark. By the way, my admitting temp uh, to the emergency room was 86, which is, you know, lovely pool temperature, but pretty chilly in the body. That's really cold. cold. (laughs) I was really cold. Uh, Back to that, never interviewed a corpse. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was cold. And I hated it. It was dark and dank and drippy and icky and wet. So I called out for God again, and God kindly showed up. And when I say God, again, I do not mean that. Your higher power, right? My my whatever. called out to something, and something came back. And there opened like a window or a portal on my right. And there was my heaven. And I was told if I went through that portal or window, that was my border. I would not be coming back. So I was like, okay, see ya. And off I started to go. And by the way, what I saw was so beautiful. Uh, It was like meadows upon meadows and some white fencing in the background, low trees or bushes or something. Um, But in colors that were not of this earth. Uh, The grass, yeah, it was green, but it, it was green. And the sky was blue, but it was blue. I mean, the vibrancy was amazing. And I could perceive the consciousness, if you will, of every single blade of grass. It was all mm-hmm. alive. It was electrifyingly alive and so beautiful. And you know, upon reflection, uh, when I survived, it was like, that looked like Kentucky. And back to skeptics who say, oh, people get what they expect. I have yet to visit Kentucky. I mm-hmm. have never been there. So why is Kentucky my heaven? I don't know. Kentucky's a beautiful place then. <laughs> I, well, this place was beautiful. <laughs> so anyway, I was on my way through when uh, God, in quotes, uh, to my left, was a big flash of light. And I saw uh, where mountains met water. That's all I could perceive. And I was told in this communication that if I chose to live, that's where I would spend my days. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't Kansas. So off I go towards Kentucky, if you will. 
and uh, and then another flash of light, and there's a gallery of images. And I was told that if I chose to live, I would be heavily interacting with these people, big influences. Um, and they were all strangers, so what did I care? So I'm off to my heaven. And then there was a final flash of light and it was an image of me being in service to others. And I'd never thought about that before, to be honest. And I said, cool. And I guess God was a hippie in San Francisco at that time. Cool seemed to be like an affirmation. And I was back. And as I was leaving, I don't often share this because it's not that it's already not a weird experience, but um, I, I heard or saw or something that I would forget everything except as it would be manifest. And I don't even know what manifest meant. I looked it up. It means obvious, one of the definitions. But everything was a big jigsaw puzzle in a box mm -hmm. that had been shaken up. Nothing fit until I found that shoe. Can I ask you, yeah. what knowledge do you feel like you've gained from your near-death experience? Uh, that life, as we know it, breathing in an organic body is, yeah, temporary. But there's something else that we are that is eternal. I, I feel like I beheld eternity in that experience. So uh, the biggie is that I'm sure not afraid of death. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I appreciate life so much. Every day, I just want to eat life alive. You know, I'm just so, oh, and gratitude, and gratitude for everything. That makes for happiness, even when there are challenges. And, you know, Earth is like a trauma center in and of itself. This is like not an easy place to mm -hmm. exist. But yet, I have found the gratitude for everything. The love is the most important to me. Um, and I would, so I would say I'm far more loving. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also more confident. Uh, I have, I'm definitely more emotionally secure. I have, you know, I've never applied for a job. I've had a very successful career. I've always been asked to apply. There's been a lot of hard work within those jobs, but everything I've needed to do to fulfill that being of service to others has been presented to me on a tray. Mm -hmm. And I just have to pick up the tray. Like it was your path and. Yeah, without, you know, I, I must. It was presented be, to you easily. Yeah, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. thick headed, obviously. Yeah. I, I needed that direction. Nothing subtle in my life. I need to mm -hmm. be on the side of the head. Like, oh, yeah, go here. And that's a very cool way to live, I might add. It is. Living in the moment. You know, I thought it was really interesting and you described this in your book and so does like, you know, the famous orthopedic surgeon who's had a near-death experience, Mary Neal. But you describe like, you know, there's some people, you know, some people who've had near-death experiences go through a grieving process after they come back into their own bodies. Can wow. you describe that? Uh, again, no words. Uh, um, I never felt that I grieved coming back. I was pretty excited about everything. The world was so new and, and the sense of, oh, I also saw the funny and everything. I mm -hmm. mean, everything almost. I can find something humorous about it. Ultimately, it's my coping skill. Um, however, just a few days ago, uh, again, I'm gonna mention Dr. Bruce Grayson. Is this his show now? You probably have him on the show. 
Um, but there was, he had a book launch and I was part of those who were uh, praising him on camera. And um, at the end of my little three minutes of, you know, good job, great book, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I said, can we go home now? And that shocked me because I have no desire to do that. You know, I, I have a family, I have mm-hmm. friends, I have a beautiful home, I have wonderful neighbors. I mean, that, that just really surprised me. So maybe there is an underlying grief, but some people, um, including right out of Seattle Alliance meetings, do successfully commit suicide to get back there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and if you that feeling that, that, that they experience. had, yeah, right, they the feeling that back. they had yeah. there, that yeah. ultimate all loving. Yeah, yeah, they yearn for it. Uh, one person I'm working with now, she's she's great now, but when we first met. Um, she was very unhappy. She felt mm-hmm. like she was just a piece of meat. And so she yeah. felt about being back in body. It's interesting because once you have that sense of knowing, once you remember what it's like, the only way that you can survive in this world is perhaps making it a little bit more like that in your own life. You know, and it's like a motivation. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's working out. Mm-hmm. Um and depression happens, uh, hopelessness happens. It's very rare within the near-death community. But uh, and if you hear researchers say, "Oh, it never happens," uh-uh. Mm-hmm. We have had again a number of people, near-death experiencers, in again the world's oldest support group setting, still commit suicide. Mm-hmm. What's the percentage? Do you think? I don't know. And I was actually a suicidologist, if you will, Mm -hmm. before I became uh, interested in near-death experiences. And um, I don't know. There's not enough money thrown at this. I I don't trust a lot of statistics Mm -hmm. in this field. I think they're clinical impressions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But a hardcore scientific nose counting requires money. Mm -hmm. That's grant money. It's just not given. So Mm -hmm. I, I, would dare not say, but a very, very teeny weeny low number. Mm-hmm. I found your book really fascinating in the story of Penny, the 17-year-old too, the, the one who uh, tried to commit suicide. And she was, you were describing how she learned, you know, after her suicide attempt and surviving her near-death experience, she learned to better cope with stress than causing self-destruction. And you had also mentioned Dr. Um, Bruce Brayson's work, the psychiatrist that you mentioned earlier. Again, I think yeah. this is his show. <laughs> <laughs> that those with near-death experiences after trying to kill themselves, the vast majority say that they will never do that again. Right. And that's yeah. my point. I don't know which numbers, what the numbers are mm-hmm. uh, globally, nationally, even locally. Yeah. Uh, it is rare. And with uh, the teenager you're talking about, she was the second case someone who had a near-death experience in my life Mm -hmm. after maria and the tennis shoe i thought well there's two of us so i began to ask patients who have been resuscitated what do you remember during your resuscitation and i got nothing until i got to this one patient uh she had overdosed and uh survived um she did have to go she went through the mental health process i mean she went to inpatient after she recovered physically and then she went across the street to harborview to outpatient um, are not I mean non volunteer out inpatient and then volunteer inpatient and then outpatient. 
And because she was so young, I followed her the whole time. She was still on the Harborview system. And she changed so much that she used to go around to area high schools and junior high schools uh, and talk at assemblies to kids, other young people, teenagers about don't hurt yourselves. And, and for her, her near-death experience was finding herself with her oompa. I didn't know what an oompa was, but it was her grandpa who had died when she was too young to say grandpa. Mm -hmm. And her NDE, he scooped her up and then as if she were still a little thing and sat her on his lap and then gave her what for and said, it's not your time. You have so much to do to help other people. You're going to go back. You're going to get better. You're going to be happy. It's all going to work out. This is, you know, what they say about suicide, a uh, permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, she would go and I went with her plenty of times. And she, she was so skilled because she was another teenager. So it wasn't mm -hmm. some grown up, you know, or, or psychiatrist, you know, talking to the students. It was like, I've been here and this is what I learned. She was very, very effective until she grew out of yeah you know that age group but what a powerhouse you know what what a very difficult context you know her suicide attempt but with her near-death experience like such reassurance was provided for her to live the rest of her life yes and, and to like, help others yeah, yeah and like with maria maria by the way didn't just disappear i followed mm -hmm. her outpatient for three years uh and then i backpack through Europe. One of my graduate students took my case, so it came back and she had disappeared and haven't seen her since. Uh, with this gal, um, uh, yeah, we were in contact, physical visiting contact for years. She ultimately married uh, and she was just about to give birth the last time I saw her. I'm assuming it was a successful birth and, and that, but she was so aware. The reason she had attempted suicide was over a boy. And she would have missed mm -hmm. all of those opportunities. You mean Penny, right? Penny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was it was a uh, overdose on pills she found in the medicine cabinet, uh, uh, specifically barbiturates. And um, so she could talk to you know uh, other teenagers about don't do this over a boy or a girl. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous. And then she became aware when she fell in love, and then ultimately married, and then got pregnant. She would have missed all that. The main substance of her life mm -hmm. would have been over at age 17. Or like a hard lesson to understand, don't act on impulses, you know, but what yeah. a hard way in yeah. which to learn that. Yeah. But tell that to someone who's suicidal, you know, yeah. it, it's really impossible in many cases to successfully intervene. Depression is horrible. It's such a nightmare. And Kim, can you share with us another powerful story of near-death experience Oh, I have so many. Uh, okay, uh, this is in the book. Uh, it's a story of Dusty. So um, Seattle has Boeing, the Boeing company in it. So we have a disproportionate number of engineers. And um, engineers, they're a different kind of cat. I mean, their brain is not wired the same as the rest of us. I swear, <laughs> they're different. Complication of being a nerd. <laughs> And just, you know, categorize things differently. They're, they just view life differently. It's a, that's a sweeping generalization, but it is my experience. Um, 
so uh, John was his first name. He was admitted again to the coronary care unit, massive heart attack, blah, blah, blah. John's wife, Dusty, was a hospice patient at home. Mm-hmm. And he was so worried about her uh, while he was hospitalized that I would frequently call. She had a hospice nurse and uh, others in attendance, uh, but he was her main caregiver. He loved her dearly. So, uh, but she was doing fine. She was doing great. I reported, you know, sometimes more than once a day. Dusty's okay. Uh, this is before cell phones, by the way. So it wasn't like he could dial her. He was dependent on, there weren't any phones in the rooms in the coronary care unit or intensive care units. So um, he went into cardiac arrest one day, another successful resuscitation. And afterwards he said to me, Dusty's dead, Dusty's dead. I said, no, she's not. You know, I've talked to her nurse. Uh, she's okay, resting comfortably. Dusty's dead, Dusty's dead. And then we heard later in the day that Dusty had expired, in fact. Mm-hmm. Well, John was like a dog with a bone in his engineer brain. So he did recover and we buried Dusty and all that. But he showed up in my office one day with this, this is where engineers are different, with a, a three ring binder with you know, laminated pages <laughs> to show me very organized thinking. He had a copy of his medical records. And of course, the time of his resuscitation and recovery was noted. Mm-hmm. Turn the page, the hospice nurse's notes as to the death of the, uh, the seemingly expiration of Dusty's life. Turn the page. And I don't know about now, but back then, Anyone who died outside of a hospital became a medical examiner's case to at least sign off on them. Um, Medical examiner was at Harborview, how convenient. Uh, And so he had the medical examiner's notes of, you know, when this death was reported and they were all the same time within minutes of each other. Mm -hmm. And the reason he knew Dusty was dead is because he said that during his resuscitation. When he had coded, right? This is during Mm -hmm. the code. Yeah. His experience, his near-death experience was a great ball of light. It started small, but got closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And then this light opened up and in the middle of the light was Dusty beckoning to him. And he said, Kim, the word beckon is not in my vocabulary, but that's exactly (laughs) what Dusty was doing. This kind of, he used his hands like I'm showing on camera now. Like he was, she was waving to him. Yeah. And she was waving goodbye and letting him know that she had died. And then the light, once he got that, the light then enclosed her and receded. And then he was back in his body, you know, looking up at a lot of hubbub in his room. Wow. And that's when I went in to see how he was doing later. He said, Mm. Dusty is dead. And he knew. You know, here I'm telling him, yeah, she's fine. He knew. He knew. So that's one of my favorite stories. Um, There's an ineffability to it. Like, how do you explain that? Like, you, you could minimize it and call it just coincidence, but how do you even explain that? There, It's beyond words. Well, it's a mighty good coincidence. <laughs> At some point, you just got to go, hmm. I, and this was not, this has been just brought to my memory attention. And I know 
I'm taking your time, but I want to tell you another story because this popped into my head. Not yes. under death experience, a death experience uh, on the medical intensive care unit. Uh, a woman died, and um, uh, her only child, a 16-year-old boy, was out in the waiting room, and it was my job to go out with the physician to tell him, sadly, that his mom had died. He had no one out there. What a horrible thing to land on a kid. Um, but I asked if he wanted to say goodbye to her. You know, the nurses would clean up her body. And he said, well, I don't want to see her, but I want to talk to her. I was sure. So, you know, body was cleaned up and we had curtains on rings that got shoved around. And when I got the go ahead from uh, the nursing staff, I brought him in and to her bedside. And I said, okay, her head is right here on the other side of the fabric. Tell her whatever you want her to know. I truly, truly believe she can hear you. Anything you want to say to her, this is your shot. And I stepped back. And the reason I knew that she could hear, this is going to sound so crazy, Michelle, but I could see with my eyes, this woman, like in spirit, standing next to her son with her arm around him as he was telling her cheerfully, I love you, I love you, don't mm. leave me and all that. She was she was next to him and I could see that. And it was like, does this happen? Did this happen often for you after your near death experience? Like being oh, able to I've, see I've stuff had, like that? I've had my weird, okay. yeah, I see things. Uh, so you yeah. saw the mother spirit around her son who was crying. And comforting her with like an arm, like she was in body, yeah. but she, I could see through her. Comforting her son. Oh my gosh. I could see through her. But I could see that it was she. I mean, I knew mm -hmm. my own patient. And it blew my mind. I haven't thought about that story in a long time, Michelle. But thank you. For yeah, I ask you. And in the hospital, I think the truth is one sees and feels many things. And sometimes we just don't know how to describe it. And it's like so stressful that sometimes we don't talk about it, but we all feel something, you know? May I yeah. ask you, how did she look with her arm around her son? Uh, good. Better than <laughs> she did in bed. Where, she know, looked she like something? she was at peace, even though her son was physically crying then. I, I was not reading her emotional mm -hmm. support. I was reading her behavior, mm -hmm. the arm around him. At yeah. the same height that they, I never saw her standing up. To tell you the truth, behind the curtain, she still had an intubation tube in that wasn't hadn't been removed. Mm -hmm. That wasn't in her throat. Mm -hmm. uh, she looked healthy, um, like a mom. Yeah, the essence of herself. Yeah. By the way, when people within a near death experience see deceased loved ones, in my experience. Everyone who's reported that to me see them at their most, quote unquote, healthy state. Mm -hmm. They seem to be in their late 20s, early 30s, no matter how old or messed up they were when they died. They seem very alive, very beautiful. Again, like they would have at, their, at the peak of their physical selves. Even with uh, disabilities, um, Another one of my patients. I'm getting so mm -hmm. far off. Well, I love this, you know, Kim, because you bring up many things, but you also bring up 
I feel like sometimes in life, we almost try to over explain or over justify things. And I think sometimes when we do that, we really limit our experiences, like the power of love. You know, if she was really, if her essence was really there around her her son, providing him comfort, you know, like she did in life. And then in death, it's incredible, you know. And he was comforted. Now, him I could see in the physical. And he went from don't leave me, don't leave me to like a calm breathing. And until and I stayed with him, I wasn't going to leave the guy. Um, until he said, okay, I'm ready to go. And he had pulled himself together. As a 16-year-old boy who was facing the biggest trauma ever. And um, yeah, worth your tears, mom. <laughs> I can tell you're a mother. Um, uh, yeah, it worked. Whatever she was after, she succeeded. And I had the honor and privilege of watching it myself. Yes, I just think we don't really understand like the unlimitations of love, you know? It's just... Can I tell one more story that yes. I plan to share? I, I feel like I have these invisibilities. It's popping up. Please share. Heck, everybody, I can't hear you. Uh, another patient of mine was a woman who, again, back to the coronary care unit. She was a heart patient, resuscitated. What happened in her near-death experience turned out that in her younger days, uh, she was single and full of love and fostered a... Uh, boy, young boy who had severe spinal bifida, severe, the, the worst end of the scale. Mm-hmm. He was in uh, all the time in a contraption that was either like a, a bed wheelchair or in bed itself, didn't communicate, very, very high maintenance. She got nothing back from him, but she loved him. He eventually died. She grieved him like any mom. Um, Years go by. She's now at Harborview on the coronary care unit. And what happens in her near-death experience? She sees herself like in like a beautiful field. Uh, she said it was so beautiful. And off in the distance, she goes, what? And here comes this extremely disabled young man who bounded up to her. And again, she said, this is she said, this life with Beckon. Uh, she said, I don't use the word bound. But that's what he was doing, like bounding up to her, perfectly healthy, as if he had run, jumped, and played his whole life, and reached out to her and said, thank you. I knew every moment that you loved me. Oh, my gosh. tell you, I could feel it all. I understood it all, but I was trapped in that body. And I'm so happy. And thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you so much. And they had an incredible, another mother-son reunion. Of, and again, she had no idea she was even impacting his life. She just had had mm-hmm. compassion on him and fostered him. And yeah, love when he survived and woke up then. Yeah, and to tell me that story, you bet. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, she's very happy. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting what you wrote in your book that even those who don't remember um, or recall their near-death experience, that they still undergo a transformation and in terms of spirituality values, and they may act differently and have a sense of knowing. I'll tell you, um, 
since I've written the book, I've had two occasions to talk to near-death experiencers who have no memory of their near-death mm -hmm. experience. One was after 9-11, where <laughs> I was in Providence, Rhode Island, which is pretty close to New York, but suddenly, you know, getting home was a nightmare, and there were lines of people snaking out of the Providence airport. And in line uh, for Southwest, where I was, was a woman that appeared drunk. She was weaving and slurring and carrying on, and people were stepping back from her. But, you know, the social worker, yours truly, stepped in. I mean, I wasn't going to let that happen. She needed help. I thought she was drunk, too. But it turns out she'd had a severe stroke wow. uh, and should not have been traveling. But her daughter had just given birth to her first grandchild in California. And nothing was going to keep this woman off of a plane. Not 9-11. <laughs> not her incredible disability, her, her challenges physically to even motate. And um, so we sat next to each other on the plane. And I, my route went all over the United States and so did hers. And she got off before I did. So I, I got to advocate for her through many stops as everybody, again, all, all air travel was so messed up. But she said that she had a near-death experience because we're chatting, you know, what do you do? And I tell her uh, that she doesn't remember. But while she was in a coma, um, she was able to still talk as she was getting lighter and lighter. And she was had a loving family surrounded her. They read to her and, and they wrote down whatever she was mumbling, like her dreams or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she said that she was told that um, and she has a vague memory of this, but it wasn't clear. But she said, I'm going to call it a near-death experience that um, she was like in, in a twilight situation. And um, off in the distance, she saw a light, a, a, a light, a soft light, followed by a lot of little lights, tons and tons of little lights. And it got closer to her. And she realized, oh, this is now wrap your head around this. This was like what she called an angel bringing the unborn into life. And all those little tiny lights were unborn. Mm -hmm. And they were on their way to life. So she hitchhiked a ride and then came out of her coma. But she doesn't remember anything else. She just knew a lot of other things happened. But that's her faded memory. But she did talk about it. And mm -hmm. she doesn't remember talking about that to her loved ones. And then, uh, and it's kind of like that Disney movie Soul. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. I'd Before like he knows, like, yeah, yeah. Who, who? I, I want to interview those writers. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Uh, and my other clear example of not remembering is someone who was a local television personality it was on a live comedy show after Saturday Night Live in Seattle. At the end, they're taking their bows, and she V-fibbed, ventricular mm -hmm. fibrillation, and collapsed. Cameras are still on for a moment. They shot out, but the audience was still there. She's still hot mic. And someone did citizen CPR, and she came around. I mean, no one moved from their seats. She still was mic'd. And she began to talk about this light and having a reunion with her brother, Michael, who, by the way, was dead. Mm -hmm. and um, just how wonderful it was to see him, how good he looked. She went on and on, and then VF'd again, and then Medic One came, and they resuscitated her, took her to Harborview, of all things. She has no memory of that, 
but there's a whole audience and all it was recorded on the mic that completely wow. yeah it was it was mic'd she was on microphone mm-hmm. yeah it changed her life completely and what does she do to this very day this very week is she lectures now pandemic has put her on zoom but she lectures uh to others about heart disease and she's a very popular lecturer because she's a performer and she's funny mm-hmm. and uh, she has taught me all about wear red day which was last month mm-hmm. you know, and the importance of women because heart disease still takes out more women than anything else um you know wear red she's become and she at loving and i mean just everything but she just doesn't remember what happened a life saving in her in her new path in her new life yeah utterly changed mm-hmm. I thought it was also really fascinating how uh, you were describing how not all NDEs are necessarily happy or of the light. And you had described two stories, which I really loved if it's okay if I describe. The 14-year-old girl who had been raped and strangled, and she was admitted to the ICU with respiratory problems after being strangulated. And she, she had talked about her encounters with Satan. And also you had mentioned Howard's story who saw demonic beings around him and called out to God. And then I guess it, it you know, then he, at that time he was surrounded by loving spiritual beings and he went through a review of his life and he was appalled that it was so self-serving. Yeah. Uh, and I've got other examples. Someone, mm-hmm. a, a physician, Barbara Romer is her name. Ironically, she's now deceased, but she wrote a book called, um, Blessings in Disguise about frightening experiences. And there's three books by the expert, a woman by the name of Nancy Evans Bush. She has a book that just came out two weeks ago on the subject. I bow to their expertise. But Barbara Romer, MD, um, got a hold of my database, you know, my research Mm -hmm. subjects, because I still have to do clinical research if I was going to be part of. on my way to becoming a clinical assistant professor. I didn't lose my ambition because of <laughs> I was going to climb that. You got stronger. Time. Yeah, I did. I had things to say. Um, anyway, she determined that my, my group of NDEers, 14% had had a scary near death experience. Now that is the highest headcount ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was like, why does Kim have such a high number of people who've had such, you know, scary, distressing near-death experiences. And I think it's because I asked, you know, there are other researchers in that era that denied, you know, they thought, oh, all NDEs were of the light and love. And I was going, no, that's squirrely, you know. So Mm -hmm. I would ask people and that invited them to trust me. And then because I'm a social worker, the therapy would start. And I became and remain pretty good at helping Mm -hmm. people who have been scared. Uh, I haven't lost a soul yet. Everyone that I have been a part of um, have been pulled out of that just by being heard, mm-hmm. just by letting it out to someone who believes every word. Mm-hmm. And there's no trick to it. Just, you know, let's talk some more. Let's talk some more. And it happens. Um, so the gal that was strangled, uh, you know, one might say, well, she, something horrible was happening to her physically. Uh, she was like strangled to death. Uh, that might have influenced it, but she never thought so. But um, again, it evolved into something better for her, and and we processed it. 
I love working with kids. By the mm-hmm. way. She's the youngest person I've ever known that to have had. A she was 14, right? Yeah. So she was a young teen. Never got younger than that, by the way, mm-hmm. in my experience. And then Howard Storm, who's written a very good book called My Descent into Death. Um, he was a hardcore, angry atheist. I mean, like he identified as an atheist and uh, yet had a near-death experience where uh, he, yeah, he encountered what we would call demons and he felt them physically attacking him and it was terrifying and painful. He was suffering and he heard a voice say, uh, pray and Howard being Howard, you know, basically gave the middle finger, you know, pray, (laughs) you know, and again, more, more assaults and, and horrible things I will not describe here. He won't even fully describe in his book, Suffering Now. And again, he heard pray. And again, he goes, you know, half Yale, I'm, I'm such thing. Me, Howard, the same old angry Howard, more suffering. And finally he heard it again, third time. He goes, oh, right now he had had it then. But he didn't know how to pray. He'd never prayed in his life. So what did he do? He gave the Boy Scout oath. Uh, the national anthem words, I think that was one of them, or, or no, the Pledge of Allegiance, not national anthem. Boy Scout oath and the Pledge of Allegiance. But the prayer was in his heart. They counted his prayers. Mm-hmm. And he said this, you know, angels came down into this darkness, flooded it with light, these withering beings that he had been in the dark with. He saw how nasty and terrifying they were as they fled. And then he said, if he was to measure time, he spent, he called it hell, uh, that he spent two weeks in hell in these experiences. But then the angels took him to what he called heaven. And he spent about six weeks there getting over it. Mm-hmm. Now, his resuscitation did not take eight weeks. You know, I mean, the, you know, you know uh, resuscitation mm-hmm. lasts only so long. But in his timelessness, that's how it was. Howard who had been the head of the art department, a tenured position as an art professor at University of Northern Kentucky, I believe, uh, stepped out of that role. Who gives up tenure? Mm -hmm. Nobody. He did. And he went to seminary. I met him shortly after the experience. It was three hours of Howard crying. But it just so happened, we crossed paths. and um, He went to seminary, and he became a pastor. Uh, in an impoverished church in Cincinnati. Um, and he said he got 10% of his salary that he used to and worked 100% more than he did as a professor of art and head of a department, but he loved it. And then that led to mission work in um, Costa Rica in a village that five miles from the ocean, but no one had seen the ocean. Very, very poor. Uh, he just gave his whole life over to, again, serving others and He's now the Reverend Howard Storm. He is an awesome guy. Talk about a change. I'm Definitely. Book too. It's very inspirational. You know, as we, and thank you for this wonderful conversation. And as we end this conversation, may I ask you, why do you think people have NDEs? From a personal perspective, I think it's because we're so thick headed. <laughs> I call it like a whop up side of the head. You know, we're going in such a, wrong direction that's like okay here comes the cosmic two by four 
That's that's my opinion, having been hit by the cosmic two by four. But yet there are plenty of people that go on to hurt others and, you know, they're still hurting others. So I don't get it. Um, so I don't know. That's the wisest thing I can say. And mm-hmm. I say that about a lot of things. I don't know. But I do know the numbers are increasing as uh, resuscitation becomes more common. Citizen CPR. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. How to give someone a near-death experience. Be a non-physician, a non-RN, a non-respiratory therapist. Learn CPR and bring someone back yourself. There's a cool life experience. Um, and I think for the rest of us, it's something to think about, you know, before you need the experience of dying, maybe perhaps live how you're meant to live or listen to yourself. Just people listening, just live and live yeah. in gratitude and, and find love. If you don't find it in a human, find it in that pretty rock on the ground or that sunset or this good book or this podcast or <laughs> this webinar we're having right now on zoom exactly Find this it. animal it. yeah oh yeah a- oh, animals a whole other subject mm-hmm. or pets and animals yeah. and within a near-death experience a lot i have a, I have an hour-long mm-hmm. lecture just on that yeah get interested get involved love your lives hug yourself it begins right there and this is homey home it's in our hearts <laughs> And maybe, you know, the rarity is living from the heart, but how much happier or more fulfilled could all of us be if we lived from the heart? Exactly. And, you know, your audience is primarily physicians. Hard to do that. It's a hard knock life. You chew off a lot to be an MD. Oh my gosh. Talk about being of service. You know, it's, but yet um, I know tons of MDs that manage to, perform in their head and yet live in their heart. Dr. Choi, you are one of them. As we've gotten to know each other, uh, I feel like you're a friend that I just hadn't met before, but you've got the right stuff, my dear. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Well, it was such an honor to speak with you, Kim. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.